One of the things that is difficult for us to believe sometimes is just how wicked or just how deceitful some people can be. Now, I don't mean to imply that it is proper for us to be self-righteous. Not, not at all. If we are objective and honest, we have to admit that our own hearts are deceitful and de- desperately wicked. We are all capable of anything. But it seems to me that those of us who are Christians can sometimes be naive. And that may be because we have a desire to believe the best about people, assume the best. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be something that we need to be aware of in our lives. Sometimes we find it difficult to believe just how wicked or how deceitful some people can be. For example, a few months ago, when I heard about the abortion doctor who was killing live babies outside the womb on an operating table, I almost couldn't believe it was true. There was just something in me that said, there is no way a man could do that, and there is no way an attending nurse could allow that, and there is no way a mother would tolerate that. Such Hardness of heart seems inconceivable to us. Along these same lines, it is difficult for some Christians to believe that there are actually people in Christianity or under the umbrella of Christendom who willfully misrepresent God and His Word for their own benefit. It is difficult for some Christians to believe that there are actually people preachers who tell others what they want to hear to get their money. It is difficult for some Christians to believe that there are actually ministers who know what the Word of God teaches, but refuse to accept it and teach contrary to it, all the while claiming to be a representative of Christ. It's difficult for some Christians to believe that there are actually false teachers in the church, in Christianity, under the umbrella of Christendom today. How could someone actually take advantage of others in the name of religion? How could someone knowingly misrepresent the Word of God? Such hardness of heart and deceitfulness seems inconceivable to many Christians. Maybe that's why God says it over and over again and warns about it so often in His Word. If you have been with us in recent weeks as we worked our way through 2 Peter 2, then you know exactly what I am talking about. This morning we move into 2 Peter chapter. Three. So please turn with me in your Bible, if you're not already there, over near the end of the New Testament to the little letter of Second Peter. And this morning we move into chapter 3. So please follow along as I read verses 1 through 7, although we won't make it all the way through all of those verses this morning. But I want to read this paragraph in its entirety. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you, This second epistle, 
in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Coming off of the scathing rebuke against false teachers that Peter gave in chapter 2, he now turns his attention in chapter 3 to the task of encouraging believers to be discerning and careful not to be swayed by the words and actions of false teachers. Peter was well aware of the fact that false teachers have the ability to do two things. Number one, false teachers can influence unbelievers away from the truth and toward a Christless eternity. And number two, false teachers can influence believers away from the truth and toward a life of stagnant spiritual growth or spiritual decline. Peter was concerned that neither happened. That's why he wrote this letter, and his focus here in chapter 3 is on the possibility of believers being deceived or misled or confused by false teachers. You don't have to live very long in life to see that happen, unfortunately. My guess is just about everyone in this room could probably tell a story about someone you know who was once walking closely with the Lord but was drawn away or confused, or misled, or deceived by a teacher who contradicted Scripture, or twisted Scripture, or misrepresented Scripture. The stories are numerous and tragic. Peter obviously knew that such could happen, which is one of the reasons why he wrote with so much concern, so much intensity, and so much compassion in this letter as we have seen over the last few months. His concern comes through in the early part of verse 1 as he addresses his readers with tender pastoral care. Notice how he begins this chapter. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Peter addresses his readers as beloved, or dear friends, depending on your translation. That is quite a contrast to the titles he used in chapter 2 to describe false teachers. You may remember that he called them brute beasts, spots and blemishes, wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest. He compared them to a dog that returns to its own vomit. He compared them to a sow that returns to wallowing in its own filth. And when I say that Peter described false teachers that way, 
I, I don't want us to forget that what he wrote was under the inspiration, the guidance, the direction of the Holy Spirit. So it is accurate to say that those descriptions in chapter 2 are also God's descriptions of false teachers. In contrast to those descriptions, Peter addresses his Christian readers as beloved or dear friends. And he reaffirms that his goal in this second letter was the same as the goal of his first letter. His goal was to stir up their pure minds by way of reminder. He already mentioned this back in chapter 1. Do you remember what he said there in the opening part of the letter, chapter 1, verse 12? He says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Peter had already said these things to his readers. Maybe he's referring to the fact that he said these things personally to them or to his first letter or both. Maybe he has both in mind. You could say it this way. He had already preached this sermon to these people. But he was going to keep saying the same things over and over again because these issues are that important. Not only had he already said these things to his reader, but he acknowledges here in chapter 1, verse 12, that they already knew these truths. They were already established in these things. Still, he felt it was important to remind them. We all forget things that we've known, right? We all let them slip. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 5, Paul said to the Thessalonians, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Don't you, don't you remember, he said? Jude 5 says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this. You you did know this, but now I need to remind you. We all have that tendency to forget, let things slip by the wayside. Peter knew that. Even though his readers knew these truths he was expressing and were established in them, Peter wasn't going to take any chances. He understood how subtle the devil is. He, He knew how crafty the enemy of our souls is. He had surely seen Christians who were doing well for a period of time get sidetracked or confused or lulled into apathy. He had probably seen Christians he never would have guessed would end up spiritually useless actually get to that point in their lives. So he wasn't taking any chances. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. Peter's hope, his his desire, was to stir up his readers by reminding them. We we all need this kind of thing sometimes. We need to be prodded or or goaded or nudged to move off dead center when we have lapsed or when we're not heading a good direction. Peter knew this was the right thing to do. And he knew that he wouldn't be able to do it for an indefinite period of time. He knew his time was limited. He knew the time was coming when he would put off his earthly dwelling, his his body, or as it is translated in the NIV and ESV, his tent. And so he says in verse 14, Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. The Lord Jesus had told Peter, that he would die a martyr's death. So as Peter began to get older in life, he knew that it must be soon because he knew he wasn't going to die of old age. 
It was approximately 40 years earlier when Jesus and Peter had that conversation walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus told him he would die a martyr's death. And now as he writes this letter, late in his life, he's certain the time is near. That is why he felt such a burden to make sure that his readers were, in, were remembering the importance of staying strong in the truth. It was so much on his heart that he he wasn't content just to remind them in life. He wanted to remind them even after his death. So he says in chapter 1, verse 15, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Since Peter knew he wasn't going to be around much longer, he wanted to ensure that his readers would have some kind of regular reminder. That's why he wrote this letter. This letter would serve as a continual reminder to his readers of the importance of staying true to the Word of God, strong in the truth. Every time they read and reread the letter, they would see and hear Peter's passion coming through loud and clear. It's almost as if Peter is saying, I want this truth and my words to be ringing in your ears when I'm gone. And that's what he reiterates in our text over in chapter 3. Now let's go back there to that text. So Peter reasserts his intention for his letter to be an important reminder. He states that here in chapter 3, verse 1, and that begs the question, an important reminder of what? What was so important? What was so critical in Peter's mind that he felt he needed to give a regular reminder? Here it is, verse 2. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Peter's basic point in this verse is that it is extremely important for us to take seriously and to take heed to the message of those who have warned us about false prophets and false teachers. The holy prophets of the Old Testament era warned about false prophets. And the New Testament apostles warned about false prophets and false teachers. And Peter's point here in this verse is that we ought to take those warnings very seriously. Let me show you just a couple of examples of some of the Old Testament prophets who warned against false prophets. Go back with me to Jeremiah chapter 14. If you find the Psalms... Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, then Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 14. And there are so many examples. I just had to narrow it down to a couple here that were were most uh, pointed. Jeremiah 14, beginning in verse 13. Jeremiah 14, verse 13. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, that is to the people, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. They prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their hearts. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, 
whom I did not send, and who say, Sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem. Because of the famine and the sword, they will have no one to bury them, them nor their wives, their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. Now the thing I especially want us to notice is that two times in this text, the Lord says that these prophets were prophesying in His name. Don't miss that. They were prophesying in His name. That's what makes false prophets and false teachers so dangerous. They claim to represent God. They claim to speak for God. They assert that they are giving people God's word. But they twist the word of God, or misuse the word of God, or misrepresent the word of God. Beloved, this is exactly what so many preachers do on television or on the radio. They claim to be Christian ministers who speak in God's name, but they do not accurately represent God and His truth. Skip over to Ezekiel chapter 13. Just keep going to the right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel chapter 13. Verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against, watch this, the prophets of Israel who prophesy. And say to those who prophesy out of their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. You have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. They have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Have you not seen a futile vision? And have you not spoken false divination? You say, The Lord says, but I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. Three times in those verses, notice, Three times in those verses, the Lord states that these false prophets make the claim that they are speaking for the Lord. They say, hear the word of the Lord, or thus says the Lord, or the Lord says the following. This is exactly what false prophets claim. They claim to have a word from God. Watch typical Christian television. You won't have to watch very long before you will hear a preacher say, I got a word from God. I have a word from God. Let me give it to you. They claim they have a word from God. They claim to be speaking on behalf of God. They claim to be ministers of Christ. Beloved, please realize and understand that just because someone claims to be a minister of Christ doesn't mean that he or she really is a minister of Christ. Just because a person has the title or the position 
or the TV show doesn't mean that person is a true spokesman for the Lord. This kind of misrepresentation was going on all the way back in Old Testament times. In fact, Moses warned of false prophets as far back as Deuteronomy 13. All the way back in the Pentateuch. So Peter, in his second letter, encourages us to take the warnings of Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles seriously. But Peter wasn't the only one. Jude gives us the same exhortation. As you go back to the New Testament, towards 2 Peter, go a little ways beyond it to the tiny book of Jude, just before the book of Revelation. As we have seen several times in our study of 2 Peter, the letter of Jude has some amazing parallels in it. Jude wrote his letter to warn about apostates and false teachers, but he didn't stop after giving those warnings. In verses 17 through 25, right at the end of the letter, he goes on to tell how genuine believers can flourish and thrive and survive in the midst of apostasy. When so many around us are denying the faith, leaving the faith, rejecting the faith, teaching things contrary to the faith, how can God's children flourish? To answer that, Jude gives four key concepts in verses 17 through 25. He says, realize, remain, rescue, and relax. Now, we don't have time to look at all four this morning, but I want us to notice the first one because it ties in exactly with our text in 2 Peter 3. Verse 17, Jude says, But you, beloved, remember, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first key principle that Jude sets forth to flourish, thrive, and survive in the midst of apostasy and false teachers is to come to grips with the fact that this problem is a reality in Christendom. False teachers are a reality. So often Christians are totally oblivious to what the apostles have warned us about since the beginning. We fail to take seriously what Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15 when he said, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Please hear that. They don't say, I am a minister of the devil. Who would listen? Very few. They say, I'm a minister of Christ, an apostle of Christ. And Paul says, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their work. Jude says, take those warnings seriously. Take seriously what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.1 when he said, In the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. And listen to this, doctrines of demons. You mean demons actually formulate doctrine? That's right. Satan has his own ministers. He has his own doctrine. But mark it well, he doesn't call it Satan's doctrine. He calls it, quote, Christian doctrine. 
That's why we need to take seriously the apostles' words. In Acts 20, 29, and 30, Paul told the Ephesian elders, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking misleading or perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Paul warned in 2 Timothy 4, 3, and 4, when he said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So Jesus warned against false teachers. Paul warned against false teachers. Peter warned against false teachers. The apostle John also made mention of false teachers. In 1 John 2.19, he said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. In 2 John 7, he said, For many deceivers, notice that many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Jesus warned, Paul warned, Peter warned, John warned. So here Jude says in verse 17, listen, realize the truthfulness of what the apostles have said. Take them seriously. False teachers are a reality. Don't be naive. Don't be undiscerning. Don't be surprised when someone begins to, in the name of Christ, teach contrary to Scripture. Don't let that throw you for a loop. Be discerning in what you listen to, what you take in. Don't be like Ephesians 4.14, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. This is Jude's exhortation here in verse 17. Remember the words spoken by the apostles and take them seriously. Beloved, I'm convinced that many Christians don't take those warnings seriously. And I say that because whenever you say something about false teachers, you're immediately labeled unloving, divisive. It happens to me all the time. Whenever I just mention some specific example, give a quote, when will we take these warnings seriously? False teachers are a reality. And they're not just out there in the world. They're in Christendom. And remember, most of the time they look good because Satan knows that's the best way to be deceptive. He confuses the issue by trafficking in religion. When we think of the work of Satan, we tend to think only in terms of drugs and alcohol and pornography and gambling and demon worship, etc. But remember, Satan loves to mask himself as an angel of light and work through religion, religious people. You see, it doesn't matter to Satan if someone is sent to hell from the gutter or the church pew. It doesn't matter to him. So he works in religion. As someone has well said, with the occult, Satan has trapped thousands, but with false doctrine, he has trapped millions. Even though that is true, and it is true, still there are Christians who want to believe that every religious institution that quotes the Bible is true, and every person who claims to be a minister and quotes the Bible is true. Beloved, that's just not true true. It's just not true. So here in verse 17, Jude says, remember the words spoken by our Lord and by his apostles. Verse 18, how they told you 
that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Jude's statement here is almost a direct quote of 2 Peter 3.3, our text in 2 Peter. A scoffer or mocker is someone who laughs at or makes light of holy things. And let me remind you, it's not merely secular people who do this. Religious people. Religious people say, oh, come on. You're not so intellectually unsophisticated as to believe you can take the Bible as God's word? You think this whole thing is God's word? You, you don't think that men just sat down and decided to write some of this on their own? Come on. That's a scoffer, a mocker. In 2 Peter 3, P Peter clearly identifies these people as apostates or false teachers. In 2 Peter 3, 5, he says these scoffers are willingly ignorant. In other words, they willfully reject the truth and then mock those who hold it. We see that today. You're considered intellectually inferior if you believe in the reality of a personal God, the reality of a personal devil, if you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, if you believe in the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, a literal bodily resurrection, literal bodily second coming. But that shouldn't surprise us because the apostles warned of this long ago. So it shouldn't surprise us to see cults growing and making progress, theologically liberal churches or denominations prospering. It's exactly what God said would happen. Exactly. False prophets, apostates, false teachers will always be around. That's why the Old Testament prophets warned about them. That's why the New Testament apostles warned about them. Now back to our text in 2 Peter chapter 3, back to the left, just a few pages. So the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles warned about false prophets, apostates, false teachers. And Peter, just like Jude, says we need to take those warnings seriously. In fact, it is so important, not only to Peter, don't forget about the Holy Spirit behind this, it is so important to Peter, so important to the Holy Spirit, that notice the word first in verse 3. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. Now, when Peter uses the word first here in this verse, he doesn't necessarily mean that this is the first thing we need to learn in the Christian life. But he is saying that this is a top priority matter for you as a Christian. Now, this isn't pleasant. You, you all know this. 2 Peter 2 was not a pleasant journey to go through all of that. It's not pleasant, but it's important, God says. It's a lot more, a lot more enjoyable to learn in theology about the attributes of God and study his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his holiness, his justice. That's far more pleasant. But Peter says, you need to know this first. You need to know this is a top priority. This is important to put on, on, in your theological library. This is not trivial. This is not an insignificant matter. It's by no means inconsequential. This is something all Christians need to be aware of and understand. There will always be people who scoff at the truth, and they're not just out there in the world. You see, that in and of itself isn't surprising to a lot of Christians because many Christians expect people of the world to scoff at the truth. They expect that of people in secular society. We're not surprised when the people of the world reject 
the deity of Christ, his exclusive claims of salvation, the absolute authority of Scripture. That doesn't surprise us. But what does surprise a lot of Christians is when people in the church, people in Christianity, people under the umbrella of Christendom reject these truths. We're not surprised when people in the world reject a biblical view of abortion or homosexuality or whatever the, the, the issue. But we are shocked when people who call themselves Christians, even more, when people who call themselves Christian ministers reject a biblical view of those issues and many others. Yet that is primarily the people Peter has in mind when he writes this. Back in chapter 2, verse 13, Peter says he is talking about people who feast with you. In other words, these are people who would be present and partake of the love feast that was a part of the early church. These were people and teachers in the church. So when Peter refers to scoffers here in verse 3, don't pass this off to the secular world. He isn't primarily thinking of scoffers in the world, in society. He is talking about scoffers in the church, scoffers under the umbrella of Christendom. And he says that these scoffers will come walking according to their own lusts. When you hear the word lust, it's very important that you do not restrict that to sexual lusts. That's usually the way we take the word, but that's not its only meaning. It's not its only focus. This word simply means desire, as it is translated in the ESV and the NIV. These people walk according to their own desires. Read it that way. They walk according to their own desires. So how could we say that another way to help us understand it? Here's one way. They just do what they want to do and believe what they want to believe. Now you know, as a, as a Christian who respects the Word of God, you don't have the right to believe just whatever you want to believe. You have to conform your beliefs to Scripture. But Peter says, these people just believe what they want to believe. Even though they call themselves Christians, even though they call themselves Christian ministers, Christian leaders, they will do what they want to do and believe what they want to believe. If they don't want to believe something that's in the Bible because it's not politically correct in our day, it's not considered tolerant, then they feel completely free to abandon it and explain it away as something that doesn't really apply. It's just cultural. Since it's not popular today to hold to the exclusivity of Christ as the only way of salvation because we might offend other religions, they'll just back away from that idea. Compromise. Since it's not considered intellectually acceptable to hold to the stories of the Old Testament, such as a six-day creation, Noah and the ark, Jonah and the big fish, they'll explain away those teachings of the Word of God, call them myths, fables. We need to demythologize the Bible, take the fables out. Since it's not considered tolerant or compassionate today to hold to the wrongness of homosexuality or premarital sex or extramarital sex, they will say that those divine statutes were only in uh, intended for people of past cultures. Now, beloved, I could continue on for a long time listing examples. But the point is that God, in His Word, says that there will be people in Christianity who scoff at the truth and walk according to their own desires. Not God's desires, their own, whatever they want. They live the way they want to live, 
and they believe what they want to believe, and they say what they want to say, because at the foundation of their belief is a refusal to accept that the Bible is God's perfect word, inspired and inerrant and applicable to us today. They pick and choose what parts they believe are truly inspired, what parts are inerrant, throw out the rest, dismiss it. Now, when will these kinds of people be present in the church? Peter tells us here in verse 3 when he uses the phrase, in the last days. That phrase doesn't merely mean in the end times. That phrase is used in several places in the New Testament to refer to the time between the arrival of the Messiah and his return. Those are the last days. So we could use the phrase, if we wanted to just put it in our terminology, we could use the phrase, the church age. Scoffers will be present throughout the church age, which means that these scoffers that Peter has in mind are in our day. Did you hear that? Beloved, they are in our day. If you pay attention and listen and take note of what goes on in the name of Christianity, and a lot of Christians don't, because they'll turn on something on TV and they know it's so ridiculous and so ludicrous that they just say, who would believe that kind of stuff? Hundreds of thousands of people believe it. So if you pay attention and you listen and take note of what goes on in the name of Christianity, you will see and hear examples of people in Christendom who scoff at the truth. Religious leaders who scoff at the truth. They may have the title pastor or minister or priest or reverend or pope or father or bishop or teacher or professor or doctor. They may have the position as head of a seminary, head of a Bible college, or head of a denomination, or leader of a church. They may dress in robes. They may dress in a suit. They may dress in jeans. They may wear a Hawaiian shirt. They may talk very sophisticatedly, or very religiously, or very scholarly. Or they may speak very normally. Or they may speak as someone who seeks to be hip and cool with the present generation. They may claim to speak for God and claim to speak for Christ but they are scoffers. They scoff at those of us who are so unintelligent in their minds that we are willing to believe what God has said in his word. They scoff. What does this look like? Sometimes their scoffing is very direct and harsh. Sometimes their scoffing is very sophisticated and scholarly. Sometimes their scoffing takes the form of not even taking the time to acknowledge that there could even be another valid viewpoint or perspective. It's sort of like, well, anyone who has any intelligence knows that there are a lot of things in this book that are, you know, just myths or fables. Sometimes it's a scoffing of silence. But Peter says, don't be deceived. Those who claim to speak for God and claim to represent Christ are not really his representatives if they don't hold to what God has said in his word. If they are willing to be accepted in the modern age, to be considered tolerant, if they are willing uh, to, to be politically correct, to compromise foundational, cardinal doctrines of Scripture, Peter says they're not really Christ's representatives. And that is especially true when it comes to the issue 
of the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ as the only way to be eternally saved. Because the mantra of our country today seems to be tolerance. If you stand up and say, the only way to be right with God is through Jesus Christ, you are considered radically offensive to all other religious beliefs. Yet it was Jesus himself who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was the one who, if that's considered radically offensive, who was radically offensive. Because he made the exclusive claim. Beloved, that is a non-negotiable truth with eternal implications. There is only one path of salvation. Not many. There is only one truth. And it's not found in Mormonism or Islam or Hinduism or wherever you want to, whatever you want to put there. It's found in Jesus Christ. And that is a non-negotiable. Those who are willing to compromise that and other foundational truths, Peter says, don't be deceived. Don't be confused. They aren't true representatives of Christ. So be discerning. Be careful. Be aware of what you listen to, what you take in, what you watch, where you give your money. Because not all who claim to be ministers of Christ are really ministers of Christ. Let's bow together as we close. As we close our service this morning, I just want to reiterate what I said a moment ago about the exclusivity of the gospel. It is clear, abundantly clear in Scripture that there aren't many paths to God, many ways of salvation. Paul said there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Peter in Acts 4, when preaching on one occasion, says neither is there salvation in any other. No salvation in any other. Neither is there salvation in any other than the name of Jesus Christ. And as I said, that is a truth with eternal implications. If you are trusting in yourself, your works, your good deeds, if you are trusting in your church membership, your baptism, your partaking of communion, your confirmation, if you're trusting in anything but Christ alone for salvation, you're deceived. You're woefully deceived. So you need to understand that. You need to understand what God says in his word. And you need to abandon your trust in anything other than Christ and Christ alone. So I encourage you this morning, right right now, right this morning, right where you're seated in the quietness of your own heart, if you don't know Christ or if you're trusting in something else for your eternal destiny, turn to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith. Turn to Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I want you to save me. I want you to be my Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Take control of my life. Make me the man you want me to be. Make me the woman you want me to be. Truly turn to Jesus Christ in humble repentance, childlike faith. He will hear your prayer. Scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved call on his name. Father, as we close our time together this morning and close our first message here in 2 Peter 3, again, it's a 
not pleasant. It's not pleasant, but important. May we take seriously the warnings of Scripture. May we be alert, be aware of what goes on in the name of Christianity, under the umbrella of Christendom. Because even though we may not be deceived, we may be able to see the the foolishness of it. So many others are. And they're just swept away, whether it's the the, the prosperity of the gospel, the name it and claim it gospel, the word of faith, what, all of these things that are in the name of Christianity that are abhorrent to your word. So may we understand, take seriously, and be the people you want us to be, your people. And in closing, we pray for anyone here in our midst who does not know your son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit do his work of conviction and draw that man, that woman, that young person, whoever it is, to faith in Christ today, in whose name we pray. Amen.